is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Texas sending migrants here to Los Angeles. We're expecting to talk any second now with Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass about that. She did release a very strong uh, statement uh, yesterday taking uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott to task. Of course, this comes on the heels not just of uh, Governor Abbott sending a busload of migrants here, but also those two plane loads from, uh, now we understand, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, landing in Sacramento. So uh, one one feels as if maybe Gregory Abbott and Ron DeSantis are competing with each other. Yeah, and, and this is, of course, it is just a horrific story, and one has to feel for these migrants who, uh, you know, they're coming to the United States for whatever the reasons they're coming and to be, you know, (laughs) shuttled from Texas uh, to uh, California, both places, of course, that they're not at all familiar with, uh, is just a horrible thing. And then the question becomes, what did different politicians do about it? What did different jurisdictions do about it? Uh, And it would seem as if there's a role, I would think, for the federal government to play in this as well. And uh, once we make contact with the mayor, perhaps we can ask her uh, what sort of communication there is. I'm sure there's some between the city of Los Angeles and the federal government. And we've heard some horrific stories of the migrants' journey. Uh, I think there were some initial reports of 23 hours on the bus with no food. Uh, just kind of packed into the bus. Now, uh, Governor Abbott complains that uh, Texas border cities are being overrun with thousands and thousands of uh, what he deems illegal migrants and immigrants. Uh, but as I understand it, some uh, slightly more than 40 migrants were on this bus ride. So I don't know how much 40 migrants helps the problem that he says he's had and the reason he says he's doing this. Well, you know, I, I mean, the reasons that, that are being given are, of course, political, right? I mean, they're they're trying to make, or at least uh, the governor of Texas is trying to make his own points and score points with his what he perceives to be his base, uh, you know. But it 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 is causing enormous problems. Uh, we we do believe that there was uh, some advanced knowledge that uh, these folks were on the way to Los Angeles. And that does raise a question, of course, about whether or not we know of others that are, you know, whose arrival is pending. And if we do know about that, uh, what's next? Right. And we do have on the line now uh, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass. Madam Mayor, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. Good morning. Good morning to you. So this whole migrant issue, it is horrendous by any means. Uh, One has to uh, just uh, pour your heart out to these folks who come to the United States, go to Texas, come from Texas now to California. What is being done to help them here? And what do we do? What do you do for the future? Well, let me just tell you that um, I'm happy to say that in Los Angeles, there is a very strong network of community-based organizations and faith institutions that were ready to receive the uh, group that came. The other good news is, is that the majority of them had family to connect with in Los Angeles. I know there, there were a few that didn't. What I certainly hope is, is that the governor of Texas and the governor of Florida uh, not continue to do this. I understand that they are overwhelmed, but they are doing this for political reasons. They did it uh, specifically to punish uh, Los Angeles because of the vote that the city council took. And what I think is particularly egregious is to use a group of vulnerable people in this manner. 
You know, I think it's interesting when we bring in the politics of this and doing this to punish L.A., as you say, uh, that uh, Governor Newsom has recently been making a lot of tracks to to kind of go after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and go after what's happening in Florida, uh, specifically compared to what uh, he as governor is doing in California. And then we had the two plane loads of migrants going to Sacramento. Could that have been an issue uh, kind of as a response to DeSantis? And you say this is a response to uh, L.A. Uh, at some point, though, these migrants being used as political tools. Uh, but though, on the other hand, isn't it uh, interesting to kind of think about the fact that maybe they're getting better treatment here than they would get in Texas? Well, uh, that might be the case. I certainly know. And I've been to Texas, by the way. When I was in uh, Congress, I went uh, a couple of times to the border with other members of Congress when the last administration, the Trump administration, was essentially using the children of the migrants and taking them away from their parents, um, I went to see what that situation was. And in Texas, there is a very, very strong uh, group of community-based organizations and faith institutions that do the same thing. But we know that during those years, the border was overwhelmed. It's my understanding that the border is not being overwhelmed right now at the end of Title 22. There was the expectation that that was going to happen. It didn't happen. And so to me, that's further reason to view this as a political stunt. And in the same way that the Trump administration used migrant children as a political stunt, I think this is equally egregious. Okay, I know uh, that you've got a busy schedule and have to go. I'm sure we will talk about this uh, issue much more into the uh, future. Thank you again for your time. That's Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass with us on KNX In-Depth. And uh, still ahead, if you're uh, going to have a long night soon, some experts say, yeah, you can bank your sleep, and we'll figure out how we do that. And and the other story we're going to do is about people, you know how many people now are working from home? Yeah. And that's in quotes. They're working right. from home. But there's a study out or a survey that says a lot of those people right. are, now you ready for this? This is going to come as a shock. Okay are not actually working. You are kidding from, me. No, they're actually That's doing... That's insane. Yeah, they're doing other things than working when well, they are supposed to be working. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. My outrage knows no bounds. <laughs> uh, we have been talking about this whole uh, migrant issue. Uh, and uh, for those of you who are maybe uh, just joining us or you're not up on it, uh, and we just were speaking with uh, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass about that, You know, these were migrants that were put on a bus in Texas and then sent all the way here to Los Angeles. Unfortunately, they are now being helped, and we are expecting uh, to have on the line with us. I think we do now, do we, Rob? Is that a yes? I think so. I I think think we do. Uh, I was going to say that one of the organizations offering help is the Immigrant Defenders Law Center. And with us now is Ileana Johansson-Mendez who is the legal services director for the center. Ileana, are you with us? I am. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us. So tell us a little bit. First of all, I I gather that we had a heads up when I say we, you had a heads up that these migrants were on the way here. How much time in advance did we know? And do we know of others that are on the way from Texas or somewhere else? Uh, we didn't have too much lead time. We heard from we heard from some of our government partners the night before uh, that there was a bus headed towards Los Angeles, and that was about all we knew um, 
as we were getting kind of updates as far as our arrival time, uh, expecting them in the afternoon at Union Station yesterday. Uh, right now, we are anticipating that there will be additional buses coming, but we don't have anything confirmed. So we don't have any sense of whether there, that would be you know, tomorrow or next week or next month. But we and our coalition of, of partners here in L.A., are still preparing for that possibility. And, and just to clarify, as far as you know, there are more buses you think that are coming from from Texas or from somewhere else. And do we have any sense of how many uh, migrants we may be talking about? The truth is, we don't really know. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Governor Abbott has really used these migrants as kind of a political stunt to make a statement from Texas to multiple cities throughout the U.S. Uh, this is the first bus to arrive in Los Angeles. Um, so we don't really have a sense of how they will be coming, if they are families that intend to stay in California, or if they were put... All right, I we think... We really won't know until buses are on their way and we have time to um, talk to the families when they arrive. All right. We also have uh, Daniel Say with us from the uh, Haitian Bridge Alliance is another group also helping the migrants. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Uh, my question to you is, have you been talking to some of these migrants and gotten uh, their account of their ordeal as they uh, rode on this bus all the way over uh, to Los Angeles? And uh, have we been able to lock down whether or not they were told what was happening to them when they were put on the bus, uh, we presume, in Texas? Thank you so much for, for your question again. Um, greetings to my, our partners, and I see you have some of my partners in the call as well. Um, you know, um, what, what, what we've really seen is, is, is just people who are placed in, in a very, very um, difficult position. These this individuals, vulnerable individuals who are seeking safety, again, are being used as, as pawns, as, as tools for, for political strategy. But these individuals are... are, are are wanting to seek safety. So some of them can't even remember what they were told when getting on these buses. But I must say that uh, what, what, is, what is good uh, about this issue um, is that we, we, we discover that most of the individuals who, of course, arrive at Los Angeles, I am presently with, with, with six of these individuals uh, who are brought down to San Diego yesterday and, were, and the Haitian Mission has providing, providing them assistance, is that most of them had, had, have court dates for, 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 for San Diego, for, 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 for other areas in California. And this is good, right? Because right. This, is, this, is where they, this is where they need to be to attend their court hearing. So, so keeping aside the political agenda, keeping aside the, uh, the, the, the motive of, of, of whatever the governor is trying to do, uh, this is what we're supposed to be doing in some, in some way or form. But however, it's being used as a stunt. Right. I think we at the Haitian Beach Alliance, we believe, we firmly believe that mm -hmm. with proper coordination between organizations, cities, governors and offices, part of organization, it is feasible to allocate necessary resources to accommodate okay. significant number of people seeking safety so they can we can ensure that more efficient and compassionate processing of these individuals is being attained. Our thanks to both uh, Daniel and Ileana for uh, joining us on uh, a very important and uh, troubling topic. And as we heard uh, Ileana say, uh, they don't know how many other buses, but they do have some anticipation that there are going to be more buses with more migrants headed toward Los Angeles. But she said she didn't know uh, when they may arrive. So we, of course, will keep a very close eye and a lot of close ears on all of this. And later in the show, if you work at home, now be honest, <laughs> are you actually working right now? Like right now, 
because a new survey finds that many of you are not. Can I confess something to you, Charles? Oh, wait, this is monumental. Yes, Go ahead. it's going to yeah. be monumental. Uh, yes. It wasn't the pandemic. It was way before uh, yeah. one of my previous uh, jobs that I had. Yes. Uh, I did get to work from home for a bit, but I decided to take a break in the middle of the day. I, I, I figured I had all my work done. Uh-huh. I took a break, and I went down uh, to a comic book store. Because I'd never done oh, that before. Oh, so I look at some comic books. Uh-huh. And I saw this great display of old uh, classic comic books, yes. and I took a picture of it. Uh-huh. And I posted it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And my boss saw it. Ah. And so what are you doing? Yes. And I said, I'm, uh, don't know. So <laughs> that's how I got out of that one. And that's how you did your working from home? That's how I wound up at KNX. Hmm, Okay. Your turn. <laughs> right now, though, a tentative labor deal for the West Coast is in effect. Uh, and if it is uh, the deal with dock workers is approved, it should put an end to all those labor disruptions at the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, at least for a little while. So what will we notice here? Jock O'Connell is an international trade advisor at uh, Beacon Economics. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. And for the record, I'm working from home. There you go. Uh, are you working, working or working? I'm talking to you guys. Oh, course. there you go. All right. So what are we going to notice here if this deal goes through? Well, the first thing to, to emphasize is it's a provisional agreement. Uh, it now has to be ratified by both the various locals up and down the West Coast that are party to the ILWU and the 70 shipping lines and terminal operators that are represented by the Merchant uh, Pacific Maritime Association. This is likely to take several weeks. And in fact, the last time around, it took three months to get full ratification of the agreement. So, um, but all the sides are expressing confidence that it will ultimately be ratified. Yes. What but, does it mean? Yes. Uh, what does it mean to, to, to I, I mean, for example, I, I don't even remember the last time I went down to the docks. So what does it mean to me? It means, well, to you, it means that uh, you're likely to have greater access or you're, the, the people you buy goods from will have greater access to international markets, both in terms of supplies and fulfilling the demand uh, that foreign companies countries have for California goods. So it just, it just would improve the flow of cargoes through West Coast ports. Um, it, um, you know, it, it, but generally, it's, it's a... Uh, it will make shippers more comfortable by directing their cargoes through West Coast ports. These shippers had been uh, increasingly unnerved by the periodic disruptions that have been taking place and were more and more willing to send their cargoes, uh, uh, particularly those who were bound for markets on the other side of the Rockies, through uh, Atlantic and, and Gulf Coast ports. Um, and, and will this was, mean better prices uh, or prices not skyrocketing on the West Coast? It should have a therapeutic effect on, on pricing insofar as more ships will come into the port carrying more con- containers full of goods. But at the same time, those the empty containers that that trade will generate will provide opportunities for exporters to ship their goods overseas at more economical prices. So it's, it's a benefit both to domestically and uh, to, to domestic consumers as well as to uh, the shippers who are trying to meet the demand of, of, of foreign countries. You know, you mentioned that uh, this is going to take perhaps several months to ratis- uh, ratify. Uh, are there any rumblings that you're picking up that perhaps it might be in trouble at all? Not right now. I mean, there's always the possibility that some uh, union uh, somewhere up the coast will, will magnify a, a local dispute it has 
with uh, the, the port it serves and that that might uh, gum up the works. But, uh, you know, generally this has all uh, been smoothed out in time. It, it's just that uh, if, you're inclined, if you're a shipper inclined to be nervous, you continue to watch uh, the, the process of ratification closely. All right, Jock O'Connell, International Trade Advisor, Beacon Economics. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If you know you're going to be uh, up to something that will prevent you from getting a good night's sleep, there are now some experts that say you can plan ahead. Yeah, they say you can bank your sleep. Well, here to explain how this works is neurobiologist Allison Brager. She's the author of a book called Meathead. I love that. Meathead <laughs> Unraveling the Athletic Brain. Allison, thanks for being with us. Of course, absolutely. And thank you for loving the title of my book. I, well, I mean, you can't you go wrong. Me meathead. meathead. Yeah, that's right, Meathead. Um, Rob and I uh, were talking before, uh, and in fact, Rob was talking about it on the air. So actually, he was talking about it with everybody. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't a private discussion. All of us. Yeah. It, was, it was all of us. But he, he was pointing out that we've always understood from previous research that uh, you couldn't bank sleep, that if you tried to, it was, uh, it was just a, a failing uh, proposition, that once you didn't get your sleep, you didn't get your sleep, and what you needed to do is just be consistent in getting X number of, of hours. But you're saying that that's not the case? Yes. So um, I'm actually a military scientist and I've worked prior at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research right outside of our nation's capital. Uh, and we actually discovered and coined this term called sleep banking. Uh, it's a strategy we use now with soldiers in the field, like in preparation for uh, the long training exercises they do or even um, some of the missions they go out on. Um, it's a strategy that they now use to prepare for those times when they are going to be sleep deprived. Um, and that's essentially what we've done in these studies is we've taken normal, healthy adults and we've let them sleep in for an extra hour to an hour and a half um, every day for a week. And we find that when these normal, healthy adults are exposed to sleep deprivation, that they do much better um, physically if you give them cognitive cognitive tests or math tests to do, they um, they do much better than people who weren't given the opportunity to bank on sleep before sleep deprivation. And we've done this research out in the field too. Um, actually, one of my students at Colorado State University just finished his uh, master's thesis on doing this with army cadets there, um, where he basically, these lucky enough army cadets had the opportunity to sleep in and they did much better with their ROTC training uh, than they would have otherwise. Did the research look into what kind of sleep you were getting? Because as we all know, there are different types of sleep. You can, you can sleep for eight hours uh, in the bed, but not really get restful sleep. Does that affect actual restful sleep? Yes, it absolutely does. So one of the things about um, these individuals that were allowed to sleep in for an extra hour, they basically went through one more sleep cycle. So in that sleep cycle, they got the deepest stage of non-REM sleep, which is important for physical restoration. And they got um, a little bit more REM sleep, which is important for the mental uh, cognitive restoration. This has absolutely nothing to do with the sleep topic, but I am intrigued on, <laughs> on the title of your book, 
why it's called Meathead Unraveling the Athletic Brain. So go ahead. Sure. So um, the book is about how um, exercise is a beautiful thing for the brain and how the brains of athletes are very unique and quite honestly, more efficient and effective than what uh, people who aren't athletes have. Um, and, you know, when you think of the term meathead, you think of a dumb jock, right? That's often what I was called in college. Um, but if you dissect what actually happens in the brain when you exercise and when you train and you're an athlete, uh, there's these really remarkable changes in the brain for the better um, that ultimately lead to success for athletes, not just in their sport, but then later on in life when they go into their professional careers outside of sport. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Allison Brager, author of the book Meathead, <laughs> Unraveling the Athletic Brain. and works on uh, sleep and sleep issues. And She's a neurobiologist. And, you know, I, uh, Charles, I try to get my two hours of sleep at night. Regardless sure. of what's going on, I get at least two. And so I might start trying to get three and see what happens. Now, but seriously, how, how much do you sleep? I try, I really, no joke, yeah. try to sleep eight hours, but I don't get restful sleep sometimes. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever get much past about five. Yeah. We have a cat, so uh, we're working on the cat's clock as well. So at four o'clock in the morning, you're up feeding the cat or figuring out what the cat wants. Well, if you really want to have quality sleep, then dump the cat. I can't do that. That's a cat. Well, working from home has been a very popular option for people ever since the pandemic started, and a new survey seems to explain why. The website Upgraded Points found one in seven remote workers log in just three to four hours of actual work. Oh, during really? the day. Just three to four. Really? A survey found that they do other things like chores, errands, sleep, drink, even have happy fun time with their partners. Wait, wait, you mean sex? They're having sex? Happy fun time. They're, they're doing the nasty. Happy fun time. Some people would call it. Uh, with us is uh, Steve. He works from home for a big tech company. Uh, Steve, though, is not his real name, and I'm sure we're going to find out why he's not telling us his real name. Uh -huh. Also, Andy Monet is here as well. She is a business optimization consultant. And that's her real name. And that's, as far as we know, is her real okay. name. All right. All right. Steve, let's start with you. Uh, tell us some of the things that you've done when you were working from home that you would not really classify as work. Hmm. Well, you name it, basically. It's, it's, to me, it's a regular day. Um, when working from home, right, I go to the gym, watch TV, kind of do this, the same things I would do on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, but really, when working from home, the day is kind of different when it just comes to, in my opinion, social interactions, right? Building up relationships with your coworkers. I've been working home, from home for a couple of years, and I still feel like my remote team are just strangers because I've seen them just once in my uh, three years working at this company. Uh, meanwhile, I still talk to and plan trips with my old coworkers that I saw every day when I worked in the office. So that's definitely a benefit that's that's lost when you work from home. So are, you're technically working today or we're working I today? Am, yeah, I'm on the clock right now as we speak. You're on the clock right now. <laughs> so so just give us an idea. What did you do today since we're not using your real name for obvious reasons? Uh, what did you do today that had absolutely nothing to do with work? I shot 98 at the golf course. So that's... <laughs> okay. Wow. That's not a good thing, right? Yeah, but, no, no, no. All right. Yeah, but, I mean, to my to, to my point right, right here is that the thought that employees are working less, which I just mentioned, right, going golfing, yeah, 
it's more about the the actual work itself. So you can look at it in a couple of different ways. So a corporate employee, in my opinion, is probably doing the same, if not more work at home. And let me explain. The, the difference here is the, the illusion of not working, because again, a corporation perceives it that way. So mm -hmm. instead of going to the office and browsing the internet, socializing with your coworkers, um, taking a long lunch, leaving early, right, which is usually what's happening in the office when I was going in, you're just replacing those activities with other activities, like going to the gym or even watching TV, right? And because there is no commute, people are probably more willing to work later in the day if they chose uh, or choose to run errands or do chores around the house during the normal nine to five versus someone coming from the office mm. who has a long commute, who has absolutely no motivation to continue working right at their company. They need other, they need to do other things like chores, errands, and, you know, clean up after the kids. And, and Andy, like hold on a second, Steve, Andy uh, Monet, is Steve just rationalizing? I think that, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things there, right? I mean, people do, in fact, do personal work during during business hours, um, and it's true. The one of the things which may not be Steve specifically, but I know in my work, in my clients, and I have several Fortune 500 companies. Depending on what their role is, they might not do work during the day, even at the office. Depending on their tasks, like if it's network emergencies or cyber attacks, which don't happen necessarily every minute. So the type of work often can depend on how much quote unquote work is actually being done versus another role like accounting, let's say, which is constant. So I think that it really depends. Yeah, Andy, you raise a very interesting point because uh, that was going to be my question. People who go into the office also waste time. But do we know from any research or surveys that more time is wasted with people working at home versus the people who waste time when they're actually in the office? You know, I've been following this topic for several years, even before COVID. And the Harvard Business Review and Stanford and several, several independent, quote unquote, independent consultants who've done surveys actually say the opposite. And they say productivity goes up. They say people are more happy, which means they want to work better. They, you know, and and what my opinion is, is that we all have distractions during the day, whether you're at the office or at your home, whether it's the kids or making a, med a doctor's appointment. And at, at the office, I feel like people get very uncomfortable and nervous and, and they try to hide that activity. Whereas if you're doing it at home, nobody's looking over your shoulder, you're more prone to do it. But I also feel generally speaking, you're also more prone to be honest about, okay, well, that was whatever, 15 minutes. So I'll add 15 minutes at the end of my day. Steve, back to you. And as we pointed out, that's not actually your name. So I'm curious, do you not want to use your real name because you're concerned that your employer would be upset? Uh, I mean, it could be that there's a couple of different reasons. Um, yeah. So it's it's more about, you know, this is kind of turbulent times, especially in big tech. I mean, you're not uh, like a fugitive or anything like that, right? <laughs> I mean, you you no. just don't want to use the name. <laughs> and, and you're not employer. really CIA or something, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't tell you that if I was. Okay. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> Steve, let me ask you a question. When you're uh, when you're uh, working from home and you have, like, say, a Zoom meeting, uh, you wear pants, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No response. <laughs> no response. All right. So not only do we not get the name, we don't get a response on the pants question. <laughs> All right. No, but I mean, I, I do want to say one thing is that, okay, when we're talking about the actual work itself, people actually working yesterday had an hour meeting, right? Uh -huh. That meeting could have been condensed into not even exaggerating here, five minutes. We, we decided to show, we took one hour to decide to show one slide, right? 
And so it, it's more about how corporations, in my opinion, at least in big tech, are a bunch of fluff. There's so much fluff out there that everything could be in an email. Meetings are just put on the calendar. I worked an hour or did I work like five minutes, right? So what does that mean? Like we have to define the actual work itself because I, when you're talking about an accountant, like my girlfriend is an accountant. She has to get things done on a certain deadline. There, there is no fluff. When you're talking about meetings and just like planning on doing things, the first five minutes is how was your weekend? Nobody remembers how their weekend was. So it's like another five minutes to remember what you did. There goes 10 minutes. So Andy, briefly, he makes good points, no? Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the things I I consult with with companies is how to actually have a meeting and what it entails and how to not make it one to two hours every single time you, you request one. All right, Andy Monet, uh, business optimization consultant, and Steve, not his real name, who works at home for a big tech company. It's interesting that he wouldn't answer the question about the pants. Pants. Yeah. We don't know. That's a mystery I can say for you and I, Charles, when we get to work, we are studiously working, researching, writing, preparing for the show. But you know what? Once we're on the air, we can't fake it. No, but you know what? Nobody knows if we are wearing pants. That's not a question I'm prepared to answer at this point. Another edition of In-Depth coming up tomorrow at 1 p.m.